decided to show up at said church in that attire or lack thereof. And when inevitably asked to leave, I would declare with righteous indignation that they could expect a call from my lawyer for false advertising. No rules, just Jesus, you said. But lest I spend this entire time up here straddling the high horse I've climbed up on, I must admit that I am prone to an era that I would think is even more grievous. That in my defense of orthodoxy or in my attempt to maintain fidelity to scripture or the church's story, I am willing to commit an even more terrible error. No Jesus, just rules. No Jesus, just just rules. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe none of you have ever felt this way before, and that's fine, you can just sit there. But maybe some of you have felt this way. Maybe some of you have recognized this, this in yourself. Perhaps for some of us it is a default position. No, Jesus just rules. Of course, it need not be limited to doctrinal declarations or creedal confessions. You know, it wasn't until seminary that I realized the centrality of justice in the scriptures. And it's, it's teeming with it, probably because I didn't grow up reading the Old Testament as much as I should have, or uh, maybe because I grew up in a tradition that, that really valued personal piety over and against the idea of deconstructing systems that, that promote sinfulness. 
And, I, and I'm very grateful for the time I spent in seminary with, with people who helped me to see how important, how central justice is to the gospel story. And, and perhaps it was just my first exposure, but I think there's, there's a sense in which there's been a groundswell, perhaps from, from the younger portion of my tradition, which is evangelicalism, to take, to take issues of, of poverty and oppression as seriously as we take people struggling with, with pornography or alcoholism, to come at racism as seriously as we come at Gnosticism. And this is a good thing. This is a welcome recovery. But it is equally prone to that same damnable phrase, no Jesus, just rules. I once hosted a uh, theological discussion group where we would get together uh, with uh, pipes and cigars and talk about a theology issue. We called ourselves the Holy Smokes Club. And, and one, one week, uh, the, the topic for discussion was the devil and spiritual warfare. And one of my friends had really brought this up because he'd seen this idea of spiritual warfare sort of abused in his life in the church. And, and I think that, I think it needs to be said that sometimes we can just dig ourselves into ditches without the devil's help, amen? But it was very helpful that my friend Jeff, uh, who's now a deacon in the ACNA, uh, Jeff had a background in martial arts, as all deacons should. And, and Jeff, you know, proposed the idea, he's like, I've thought a lot about this spiritual warfare thing. And he says, maybe, maybe it's not like we like to imagine where it's this sort of, you know, fully vested knight with a broadsword coming at us, you know, with all of his power. Maybe, he says, maybe spiritual attacks are more like jujitsu. And I didn't know a lot about jujitsu, but Jeff explained that in jujitsu, you, you don't actually oppose your opponent with, with equal force. What you do is you manipulate your opponent's force and use it against him. So you've probably all seen this, the, the attacker, usually a larger person, sort of barrels at this other person, and then in a very subtle, seemingly effortless move, the one being attacked has used the force of this person against them, and all of a sudden the, the would-be attacker is lying on the ground. And it's not, the energy has not been expelled from the person, the smaller person, it's, it's from the force of the larger person charging in, barreling in, making this attack. And that was what Jeff was proposing was, okay, so you're gonna be the kind of person who takes the Bible seriously. Okay, then you're only gonna be the kind of person who takes the Bible seriously. And it's gonna make you blind to everything else. Or you're gonna be the kind of person who takes poverty alleviation seriously. Wonderful, that's great. I'm not going to try to convince you that you want the SUV and the big house. I'm gonna to try to convince you that there is nothing outside of poverty alleviation, that there is no gospel outside of that, and that anyone who steps outside of that realm is damned. If you've read the screw tape letters, I think you're gonna recognize that this is exactly the way that the screw tape letters work. So if you haven't read it, it's a book by C.S. Lewis, and what he does is he takes the idea of a guardian angel and he inverts it. And everyone has a sort of personal demon with them. And so Uncle Wormwood is this sort of uh, veteran demon and he's a bureaucrat at this point, paper pusher in hell. There's lots of paper to push in hell, I am sure. 
and and he's writing these letters to his to his young nephew who's sort of out there in the field with his first assignment he's been assigned to a man and so the entire time wormwood is trying to help screw tape understand how he can use anything to trap this man and so very early on in the story the man that screw tape has been assigned to becomes a Christian, and we might think, oh yeah, well there's the end of the story, all done now. But no, Wormwood is only just beginning to think of ways that he can attack this newfound Christian. Listen to what he says. He says, okay, so for a long time, it will be quite simply impossible to remove spirituality from his life. Very well then, we must corrupt it. The world and the flesh have failed us. He says, a third power remains, and success of this third kind is the most glorious of all. A spoiled saint, a Pharisee, an inquisitor, or a magician makes better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or debauchee. See, Wormwood would be really good if he were on the other team at teaching the evangelism or the church planting class. Know your context, he seems to be saying over and over again. Understand that you can manipulate this man's predispositions and his commitments to your end, no matter what they are. Wormwood is nothing if not clever. And he realizes that blind patriotism is just a fertile ground for damnation as stringent pacifism. And that's a very troubling thought because it means that no matter what commitments we make, what party we're a part of, what cards we carry, we are just as open to attack as the person sitting next to us. It's all too possible to enter into a trap by recognizing the evil of abortion in this country. That we might enter into a trap similarly by seeing our country's enthrallment and not respect for the power of firearms. And it's not just issues like this that can catch us. No, entire concepts that we know are good, justice, liberty, even orthodoxy, are capable of taking a form of seduction that leads to our destruction. Because an ideology has no life in itself. And so, humanism or feminism or futurism or conservatism or progressivism or libertarianism or liberalism or evangelicalism or tractarianism or so on and so forth. Each of these things invites us to align our whole selves with it and in so doing to be dragged to hell. Now listen, those are not all equal, right? Those are not all equal in truth. No, no, no. Their equality only lies in their ability to strip from us love and to give to us fear. So 
When Paul, and possibly the, the most famous passage cited of spiritual warfare, talks about the armor of God, right? He gives you this beautiful list of gifts that you, the Christian, have been given. And he tells you about the sword and the shield and the breastplate and the helmet and the shoes, all these things. He says, these are all the things you've been gifted with. But he doesn't end this laundry list of gifts by saying, now charge. Now attack. No. Paul says, now gifted with this, do everything you can to stand. To stand. To not be moved. Abide. Abide, Jesus says. Abide, St. John reminds us. Abide. Not in an ideology. Not in some sort of list of ideas. Abide in my love. Abide in me. Abide in God. Can you even imagine it? A life spent in the abiding love of God? We live in a world of division. And maybe it's always been that way. But the 24-hour news cycle and social media and what have you will not let us soon forget it. When Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann visited Fuller Seminary, I'll never forget one of the first things he said. We live increasingly in a world where perfect fear casts out love. That is difficult to deny. Ideologies like hardened stones clashing together and spilling sparks and threatening to start a wildfire. And I want you to understand this. Another ideology will not fix it. Another ideology will not solve the problem. And God knew that. And so he sent a person whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. He didn't send a person who then died, whose words we now can pick apart and pick positions for ourselves. No, he sent a person who died, yes, but who rose also, and as we will celebrate this week, who ascended into heaven and who now invites us into his resurrected life. That as you will hear and then you will say this morning, we may dwell in him and he in us. That when the dust clears, we would be found standing. That we might live a life animated by this one who did not 
curse his enemies, but bless the very people who crucified him. That we might latch ourselves to this, this one who latched himself to the cross to forgive us of our many sins and offenses. That we might abide in the perfect love that casts out fear. Of course, I've done it, haven't I? I've come dangerously close to what I began the sermon deriding. No rules, just Jesus. And that's the jujitsu danger that Deacon Jeff warned me of, of course. That in seeing the world polemically, it is all too easy to be drawn towards one pole or the other. And I want you to understand this. Following this one who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life, that has implications for our doctrine and for our behavior and, yes, even for our politics. But that is not the end goal. The end goal is to know and love Jesus, this person, and if we build ourselves up into strong towers of ideology, then we will not be ready to follow him into the thin and marginal places where he spent so much time when he walked this earth and where he wants us to go. And so, I think one of the main ways that we can practice this abiding love of course, there's the prayer, there's disciplines. But one discipline I want you to try to practice is charity. And by that I don't mean wait for the Salvation Army person to be ringing their bell this holiday season so you can drop a few coins in. No, charity. Charity towards people, expecting and indeed hoping the best of other people, even people you could never see eye to eye with. Charity. And if I'm going to practice that charity, perhaps I can try to see how that sign might actually say some wonderful truth. No rules, just Jesus. Perhaps what they meant was simply that we must deny the plurality. No rules, just Jesus. Because if there's only one king, there's only one reign, and there's only one rule. And of course, there are so many things that we must seek to understand, but, but this king, his first, and indeed his greatest commandment, is that we would love, that we would love, that we would abide in the love of God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and that we would, in so doing, have love for our brother and sister, for our neighbor, and even for our enemy. That is the great commandment, and that is what it looks like to become a citizen of the everlasting kingdom, of the eternal city, of the heavenly home, of the glorious abode where our king is at the center 
our God invites us where we find the Lord, the giver of life, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen.